Uh, I mean, I was I was probably about five when I got into games. I was playing Zelda. Uh, Dad played it. I raced his game. He got mad. Um, but I pretty much been playing video games for that long. Zelda really got me into a lot of fantasy stuff, dragons and things like that. Um, I mean, I've been playing for a long, long time. So um, that's my story. I'm Steven Keltner, and I am the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. Bopo Network is the bomb, the cutting edge of geekdom. Comics, advice, D&D, movies, video games, RPGs. Finding it's easy just to stay calm. VorpalNetwork.com This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine about all of gaming culture, and listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon store. Hi, this is Rodney Thompson, game designer at Wizards of the Coast and designer of Lords of Waterdeep, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. In this episode, we're going to split the party and learn to go with the flow as we talk to WotC designer Rodney Thompson. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about uh, some news and things going on in the D&D world. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, people should know about upcoming episodes that we're getting ready to record. We've got Lords of Waterdeep that we'll be putting out here a couple weeks after this episode. And our next book club is what? Deathmark. Which is a Dark Sun novel. That's right. We've left the Forgotten Realms. No. <laughs> and it's also a novel, uh, a first-time novel by uh, some no-name guy that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Nobody's heard of that Robert Schwab. He's certainly no, but nothing too important. <laughs> he's, he's not like one of the head designers working on the new edition of D&D or anything. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm sure this novel is going to be full of elves and sunshine and good times, right? Yeah, that's what I expect from a Dark Sun novel. Called Deathmark. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Have you started the book yet? No. Of course not. You usually start, like, what, the week before we record? Yeah, that way I remember it. The problem is if I read it too early, I forget because I'll read other stuff after that. See, I've been having issues because um, I started reading a a um, collection of comic books. Um, uh, you're, you're not a comic reader, right? But there's a, a character called the Darkness. Okay. And I found a the, his books were on sale half price on um, in digital copies, and so I bought this massive omnibus edition, and it's like a th- over a thousand pages of comics. And I started reading that, and it's like, oh. I don't want to stop reading it. Like I want to keep going and keep going, <laughs> keep going. So I've, I've, I think I've learned the prologue of Deathmark. So I might have to really push the last uh, couple of weeks to get it done in time because usually I'm just really barely getting these things done on time. Right. But anyway, let's move on. We'll talk more about Deathmark when it's that episode. 
Right. D and D next. Um, any there hasn't been any big news, but they they've been continuing some discussions. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. You keep up with the news better than I do. Um, the, the conversations that they've been having lately involve uh, complexity versus ease of play. You know, do they want to have a situation where you have different levels of complexity, broad ranges of complexity, I should say, amongst, like, classes and that kind of stuff? You know, do you want to have a fighter class that can just run up and hit things and that's all he has to do uh, compared to a wizard, which is, you know, is memorizing spells and doing all kinds of crazy effects? Or do you want to do uh, a more fourth edition-like approach where there's a relatively standard level of complexity for all classes, you know, where everybody has a list of powers and that kind of stuff? And so I think that's one of the things that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um you got into the whole sneak attack versus backstab conversation. Yes, which is pretty cool. I mean, it's basically talking about uh, having rogues do extra damage if they have an advantage or something has been something that's been on many editions of the game. But the thing is, is like, is that something that really should just only the rogue should get? Or is it something that uh, all characters should have access to if they're behind, if, if they're going to hit from behind. And then maybe the rogue also has an additional uh, benefit that's tied to the class. So the conversation is maybe everybody should do extra damage when they have advantage. And oh, the rogue yeah. just gets even more extra damage. Yeah, within limits. And then the other really cool thing that they talked about in uh, that one was uh, with the way that uh, backstab, I think it was, uh, has worked before. You, the rogue could do like 10d6 damage at higher levels, and that's just crazy, right? <laughs> so maybe uh, that's that extra damage is one of a number of choices a rogue can make uh, training-wise as they mm-hmm. level. Right, which actually I liked that part of the conversation even more. Uh, <laughs> because, I mean, the whole idea of everybody doing a little bit of extra damage seems like... I mean, that's fine, but then if the rogue's doing even more than that, then why not just baseline it down another step where everybody else is doing no extra damage and the rogue is doing, you know, the 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 lower level of extra damage. It, it, you know what I'm saying? It, it just messes with the math a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think it could work, but it's just doesn't seem necessary. Yeah. Uh, but the part that I found was interesting is is the conversation about well, what if you instead have okay at, at every you know x number of levels the rogue gets the option of add another dice of damage or pick up this other little um, maneuver or ability or whatever. Right, and we kind of saw that didn't we with essentials? Uh, some of the classes had things like I think the wild talent um, for the scout, something mm-hmm. like that. Okay, where they could they could pick up additional. Mm-hmm. Uh, training but i think a lot of times they couldn't double double train in something where the rogue would be able to uh continue to train in extra damage yeah and i think that that could also play into now suddenly do you need you know say uh a separate assassin class maybe assassin can be a rogue that focuses on having that one perfect strike you know and maybe a few right. uh, maybe a few maneuvers in there that, that make that make that work even better or whatever so Right on. The other conversation was clerics and paladins. Um, they came back to a conversation about clerics because they, they had asked before in a conversation um, on the D&D Next blog. They talked about um, 
what kind of clerics do we want, right? Do you want to have clerics that heal? Do you want to have clerics that are frontline fighters? Um, do you want to have somewhere in between? You know, in fourth edition, you have the laser clerics, right? Um, we've had many different types of clerics throughout the different editions, and they're kind of asking the question of, you know, what do we want to do with clerics going into the new edition? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe maybe you want to have a cleric that's focused on one thing, and then we create other classes that do those other things. And then this one asks the question of, okay, well, the consensus is we want a cleric who is versatile enough to be a healer, but also able to be on the front lines wearing full full armor and, and fighting with a, a weapon. Okay, then why do we need paladins? Right. You know, and that was sort of the question they asked there. Yeah. What do you think? Why do we need paladins? Mm. In, a, in a world where clerics can wear full armor and fight with weapons, why do paladins need to exist? Because I just feel like paladins have more of a fighter uh, thing to them. But, yeah, no, I mean, and, well, and they t- I thought they talked about a priest class before. So, if they do, if they do that, like, do we need a cleric? But we do because it's iconic. Well, you absolutely have to have something called a cleric. Right. You can't have D&D and not have a cleric. Right. Yeah, and, and I guess, and this is sort of the point you, they made, and it's similar to what, to what you're talking about, is that you can have a cleric that runs a certain range between, between frontline fighter and stand in the back and heal and buff, and you can be anywhere in between those two points, but the most fightery version of the cleric is still more magical than a paladin, mm-hmm. and the paladin is still more fightery. You know that fills, still sort of fills that gap of, of between where the range of where the cleric goes and where the fighter starts. Well, and the other thing that I, I think about with that is the classes like the paladin that are themselves in fantasy literature pretty, I think, iconic. Particularly if you start thinking of them as knights. Although I know there's also often a, a knight class. Uh, that having that mix already pre-made for newer players, uh, I think, is really good too. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than, because I, I know they've talked about potentially having a multi-class that maybe worked more like older multi-class. Uh-huh. Well, okay. Which, which older multi-class? Uh, like 3.5. Like, where okay. you, where, unlike 4th edition, where you just kept taking levels in your your class, for uh-huh. the most part, unless you use the multi-class feat or the hybrid rules. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you can make a paladin between it with a cleric and a fighter, but it's it's still not going to feel the same, right? Right. Because usually, oftentimes, those powers don't always mix. Now, traditionally, one of the things that, that has been iconic for paladins in the game, with the exception of 4th edition, is mounts. Right. Where do you fall on the, the issue of should paladins have mounts? Well, I don't know. I... Problem is, the problem with mounts is that they're often just annoying in the game. But I think it should be something that's easily added in. Mm-hmm. Because if you have one character who has a mount, it doesn't really—it's not really giving you all that much, is it? Yeah, and I, th- and I feel like—and um, I could be remembering wrong. It's been a while since I've played a straight third edition game, um, and definitely even longer since I've done uh, a paladin. Um, but I feel like, if I'm remembering correctly, that the solution there was that the the paladin is able to summon a mount. Right. So, which kind of goes in the order of the problem that I have with fourth edition familiars, 
right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I'll just put my familiar or my, in this case, my mount in my pocket and it just doesn't exist when it's inconvenient and we can just ignore ignore that it's there. But then when I need it, you know, suddenly it's around, <laughs> right? And it makes it feel a little bit less meaningful when it can just be there or not right. on, on a whim. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I like familiars though, so maybe we should just let the mount in. <laughs> Where did that come from, anyway? Do what's, we know? What's that? The paladin having a mount is that is that a particular legend or? I think it's uh, connecting to the concept of an, of the knight, like you were talking about, right? Right. Okay. The paladin has a knight, and knights oftentimes what made knights knights is they had the money that they could afford things like horses. Right. You know, I, the reason I ask is that the Pexnarian series uh, by Elizabeth Moon, the character becomes a paladin and one of the things that a paladin gets there is a horse a horse appears for the paladin mm-hmm. uh so i was wondering if there if there if that was also calling to an older legend yeah i, but, I, I don't know that it's a specific legend just a, a general concept of knights typically mm-hmm. having mounts and you know um doing the whole jousting thing and all that right cool all right and then the last one was the commonality of raised dead. Yeah, they just asked, uh, I think it was maybe even this week, um, well, this week as we're recording, who knows when this will come out, because we've got a backlog <laughs> of like four episodes that, that we've recorded and haven't been released yet. Um, but they, they're asking the question of how common should raised dead be, right? Um, they've, they've talked a little bit about the lethality of D&D, mm-hmm. you know, how, how easy should it be for characters to die. Right. The, it seems like the general consensus from the the polls that they've done anyway, which are certainly not the end all be all of D and D players, um, but it seems feels like the consensus that, that they got from that was we want things to be deadlier than they are in fourth edition, but not quite you know first edition levels, right? Which I think is fair. But then they they raise the issue of in this article then of okay, so the game's a little more deadly. But does that matter if you can go to your local market and get a raised dead, you know? Right. And, and how common do we want that to be? So, yeah. And, and the problem is the interesting part to me is in the interplay between those. Because if, if, if death is fairly common, then it can become annoying to players to be out. Although if somehow combat uh, takes less time, then that's probably not as big of a deal. Uh but I've I've played in video in RPG video RPGs where uh, raised dead was not common and that's that can be really annoying. <laughs> what do you mean by video RPGs? Uh, I I for a long time I played a game called Avernum by Spiderweb Software and they had different editions and it's a role playing game. I I actually steal from it a lot of times for my uh, mm-hmm. tabletop game. And you have a party. But if you lose one member of your party, you're pretty much screwed and have to go back to town and hope you can get raised dead. So what they did in later later uh, versions of the game is that whenever you go back to town, you automatically just raise dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've been, I've you know, I've played those kinds of games before too, right? Um, on the other hand, it's D and D. It's not a video game. So if a character dies, you can find somebody else to join your party. You know, it's okay for a character to die and then not be there. You can find somebody else. To join you, and that you know that player can basically make another character. Whereas, yeah. in, whereas in a video game, you know, there's a set number of characters you can select from in a lot of those types of games, right? Right. And you can't just say, "Well, this person died. Let's go to the inn and put up a f- couple flyers and hire somebody new." Right. 
So I, I think a lot of it depends on on uh, how much control people want over the story and and where it goes. Because mm-hmm. some people really enjoy being having lots of character death, and they should be able to have that too. Right. Uh, and, and other people don't. And, See, and that's a really hard part for me with with uh, with stuff going forward. Um, trying to figure out how, as a as a blogger, even I would give advice to those two different groups. Like we need some sort of language for that, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, as I say, and I guess where I sort of fall in the whole thing is, I feel like Ray's dead should be r- really rare in the world, but yeah. but the players are not common. You know, the the PCs are not normal people. So if they need or really want to raise dead, they should be able to find it and use it um, with some regularity. Uh, you know, um, now it may lead to further complications or what have you, but it should be available to players even if it's not available to the rest of the world, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Right. Because otherwise... If you have a, a situation where raised dead is available to the world, you've got a really interesting sort of economy that breaks that, that breaks down now. You know, uh, in fact, uh, uh, we had an episode, uh, an advice episode, with um, Keith, 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 Eberron, Keith, Keith Baker. Thank you. <laughs> we had Keith Baker on, right? And he talked about how he sort of approaches the idea of, of world building and setting building and that kind of stuff. And we specifically used that that issue of Raise Dead and said, well, in a world where Raise Dead exists and anybody can come back from the dead, you know, how does that completely change the way people behave? And we, he sort of built this concept of a world where diamond mines were incredibly important because you had to have diamonds to cast Raise Dead. And, and you know, there was this whole um, – culture that built up around that concept of, of who gets to come back from the dead and who doesn't get to come back from the dead and who controls the diamond mines and that being a world conflict and all this kind of stuff. Right. Which, which I mean, realistically happens in every world where raised dead is common, right? So, so you, right. Have to, you have to somehow address that issue. Right. All right. Any more D&D next conversation you want to have or shall we move along? Let's move on. All right. Uh, Tome News, I just want to remind people we have set up category feeds now. So if you are somebody or if you know somebody who might be interested in the show um, or maybe interested in some parts of the show but not other parts of the show, then you should totally point them to the appropriate category feed. You know, if you just if you think they would really enjoy Behind the DM Screen, one of the new shows um, that we've got on the, the network, then you can just tell them that they can go and download Behind the DM Screen. If, you know, if you're just into Gamer to Gamer, you can go just listen to Gamer to Gamer. If you just want to hear the advice episodes, go subscribe to that feed and you can just get those, those episodes. So that is something that we put together and I'm curious to hear how people like it um, and if people are using them and how they're using those, those feeds. So that's that. Um, Gen Con. What are we doing at Gen Con, Tracy? We are live podcasting seminars. Yeah, we are. And it's kind of scary exciting. It's something I've wanted to do for years. And so this year we finally pulled the trigger and we're doing it. And then we're do- then we decided to do it three more times, to- three times total. <laughs> so we've got a bunch of uh, live podcasting uh, things going on. We got gamer to gamer. Which did I- did we announce who the guest is for that yet? I don't know. Do you know we- who the- do you know who the guest is for that? Did I tell you? Uh, I think you did, but i'm not entirely no. sure anymore T- tentative to schedules working out because none of that stuff is set yet so it could still fall through and we could find somebody else but right now the gamer to gamer episode that we're looking at um to do live at gen con is featuring chris perkins dm, DM to the stars chris perkins Woo-hoo. Uh, but we're also going to do a behind the dm screen there which we don't need a guest for that because the three of us are awesome enough 
and we're going to do a Tome Show advice episode like this one uh, live. And we haven't even started talking to people about guests for that yet. So if you've got suggestions on who you'd like to see live uh, giving advice at uh, Gen Con, sh- email thetomeshow at gmail.com and, and let me know your, your thoughts or leave a comment in the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Beyond that, um, old time saving throws. What is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, several years ago, we sort of made a joke in, when we were reviewing um, the one of the Draconomicon books that there was a monster called the, the Drakensteed that sounded like a, a metal band. And so I started making D&D songs. And I was kind of playing around with some, and uh, a friend of mine named Ethan uh, said, said, hey, I've got an idea for one. What about this? And I said, hey, you write up the lyrics and I'll record it. And he did. And it is called the, – the name of the song is Old Time Saving Throws, and it is a parody of Old Time Rock and Roll. See how that works? Old Time Saving Throws, Old Time Rock and Roll. Wow, nice. And it came out pretty decent. I, I'm pleased with it. So um, we will actually – we will link to it as a separate download in, this, in the show notes here, but we will also uh, edit it into the end of this episode if you want to hear how Old Time Saving Throws went. So there's that. Yay! New music from Drakensteed. Sweet. And now a word from our new sponsor, Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine for gamers of all sorts. Video games, board games, and yes, RPGs like D&D. All see the love from Continue Magazine. We'd like to thank them for their support of the Verbal Network of Podcasts, and if you check them out and like them, let them know you heard of them here. So now we are here with Rodney Thompson, designer uh, at Wizards of the Coast. What is your official title? I know they have a lot of uh, different titles over there. Yes, technically I am an advanced designer. So no, no mere designer, but <laughs> an advanced designer. Advanced designer. Is, is, that like, right. is that a holdover title from the second edition days? Were you in a- <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah, okay. uh, that, there's no basic Rodney Thompson. There's only advanced Rodney okay. Thompson. So. I'd like to talk to the red box Rodney Thompson tonight. Sure. Much, younger. <laughs> Much younger. Much younger, yeah. Very good. So uh, let's let's start off a little bit. Uh, who is Rodney Thompson? Uh, well, I am, like I said, an advanced designer here at Wizards of the Coast. I just celebrated my five-year anniversary here at Wizards about a month ago, and I was a freelancer before that. I started freelancing in, oh, let's call it 2001. I was in college at the time and wrote a Star Wars role-playing game book, The Hero's Guide for Wizards of the Coast, and that kicked off about seven or eight years of freelancing. Uh, and then in 2007, the... Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing game design was done, and they were looking to relaunch the line, and so they hired me to run Saga Edition here at Wizards. And of course, from there, I transitioned over to D&D, and since then, I've been working on D&D the role-playing game, D&D board games, D&D Insider, pretty much anything uh, on the D&D side I've had uh, some kind of hand in. I was a developer for a while, and now I'm a designer, so I bounce around a little bit. Nice. So, uh, how did you get into D&D? Well, uh, it's a story I've told a couple of times before, but I'll tell it again because I think it's kind of funny. When I was like 
six or seven years old. Maybe I was like eight. I can't remember exactly when, but I was I was definitely sub ten years old. Uh, there was a guy that lived down the street from me, and he went off one day to like his cousin's house, and so I didn't get to see him all day. And then the next day he comes back, and he's like, "Man, I played this game, and it was called Dungeons and Dragons." And I just couldn't I, like I was like, "Okay, I've never even heard of this. What is it?" And of course, at the time, I'm thinking he's talking about like a Nintendo game or he had a ColecoVision, if anybody remembers ColecoVision. I was like, oh, is this a ColecoVision game? And he was like, no, I was playing like this halfling thief and I, I like was fighting this ogre and so then I, I decided I was going to dip my sling bullets in lamp oil and light the sling bullets before I fired them. So I was shooting flaming sling bullets and this just blew my mind. I was just like... What game are you talking about? Like, because at that point I was like, "How do you manage all that with a D pad and an A and a B button?" Right? <laughs> that's, that's an amazing Konami code you've got going there, right? And so I, I just could not fathom what this game was. And he he described it to me, and I I just had no concept of it. Right? Well. Flash forward uh, about four or five years uh, when I'm in junior high and a guy I know offers to run a D&D game for me and uh, a couple of my other friends. And it was it was eye opening. Right? I was like, oh, my God, I finally understand what the kid down the street was talking about. I finally get it. And the funny part is that wasn't even my first real exposure to role playing games. Uh, of course, I was big into Star Wars. And earlier that year, I had bought some West End games, Star Wars uh, source books, but I didn't know that it was a game, right? Like I would just, like I was reading all the information about the characters and the ships, and then it would have this stat block at the end. I was like, what the heck is all this? Like, Blasters 3D, what does that even mean, right? <laughs> uh, no idea that it was a game, right? But then eventually, like, I fit, kind of figured it out, and my buddy ran D&D for me, and then I got very into Star Wars and, and ran uh, and played Star Wars for a long time before I jumped into my first real campaign. Uh, my first D&D campaign was an Al-Kadim campaign. I guess I was probably a freshman in high school and was playing Al-Kadim, and I'll never forget my, my, uh, my character was a Holy Slayer, which was they're like crazy Alcadim assassins, and man, that was that was the first real campaign I ever played in. And then, of course, at that point, I was pretty much completely hooked. Right on. Uh, and then you talked about you know, then you went from being a, a freelancer, and from there into working on Star Wars, and then D and D, and then board games, and everything else. So you've worked on a lot of things. What products can we thank you for, or blame you for if people don't like them? Well, uh, so the easiest ones for me to point to are all the ones that you like are the ones I was responsible for, Excellent. and all the ones you don't like I had no hand in. Yeah. So, no. That was uh, to be serious, <laughs> I, uh, any of the Star Wars Saga Edition books, I was the lead designer on all of the supplemental, supplemental books, and I was a designer on the core rule book. So basically the entire Saga Edition line I was extremely involved in. Uh, I did the Hero's Guide for the original, uh, or for the revised D20 Star Wars game. Um, for third-party companies, I've worked for Green Ronin, Paizo, I worked for AEG. Uh, I did some work for West End Games on their D6 system as well, so I bounced around all those different companies. Uh, here at Wizards, uh, obviously my most recent uh, game was Lords of Waterdeep, but I've worked on tons of different 4th edition books as either a developer or a designer. I was the lead designer of Heroes of the Feywild. I uh, did some late 3rd edition design as well. 
and was uh, I was responsible for uh, large chunks of the book called Dragon Magic, which was uh, unfortunately the uh, secret of how that game, how that book came about, did not endear it to people. But I think there was some really great stuff in there, and mm-hmm. uh, I also worked on Monster Manual Five. Uh, really just kind of a, a smattering of all kinds of different things. The only areas where I've really turned out a lot of stuff is in uh, D&D 4th Edition and, of course, Star Wars Saga Edition. Right on. And lately, you've been largely focused, or a lot of your, your big credits have been board games. Yeah, I, I spent the last year, uh, well, actually last year, not the last year, but last year uh, working with the board games team so we did Lords of Waterdeep uh, we've got a new miniatures game coming out called Dungeon Command that I was heavily involved in and even right now I'm helping work on the next wave of uh, board games as well, in addition to all the other work I'm doing So uh, I, I did spend uh, about a year very deeply immersed in board games uh, and I'm, I'm now starting to uh, reel back and look at the RPG a lot more as well so what do you have coming up, then, that we should look look out for? Um, well, like I said, uh, the Dungeon Command game coming out, we did an open playtest for that last year, and so we spent a lot of time working on Dungeon Command over the last year. Basically, you will find uh, several uh, Dungeon Command products coming out over a series of months, so mostly my credits are on that game. Uh, although, starting, um, let's see here, I, you, you, I, I did some work on the upcoming Into the Unknown source book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly Dungeon Command, honestly. It, it ate up a lot of my year. And that's the product that's going, going to allow me to buy miniatures again, right? That's right. It is a miniatures game, and uh, I'm very excited about it. In fact, just today we saw the first printer proofs for the game. That's basically where they run one off on the, you know, through the production cycle and then send it to us and say, okay, does this look like what you want? And it's the last chance for us to sort of make corrections and everything before we hit the big green button that says print. Awesome. And and if I ever make it out to Seattle, I want to see the big green button. Yes, well, I might have to. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. A giant green button that says print. That's right. I, I will have one made, especially for your visit. That would be awesome. It would. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let, should we go ahead and get into our advice topics of this episode? I, I think so. We, we picked a DM topic and we picked a player topic. Um, the DM topic is it, we'll start off with, and it's one that uh, has been requested through the forums and through some listeners, uh, through some conversations we've had. Uh, dealing with, uh, obviously, you know, we're in the age of fourth edition uh, right now, so let's talk about how do we split a party <gasps> In 4th edition. And I know they always say never split the party, right? But sometimes you want to split the party. It does something unique and interesting. Um, but 4th edition is all about working together as a team. And so let's talk a little bit about how, how to successfully split a party. Sure. So in my mind, there's the various 4th edition 4th edition specific side of things, and then there's also the sort of more general side of things. Mm-hmm. I think it's easier to sort of start at the general level and then drill down and... Sure. Um, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that that I find is challenging when I split my party is keeping both or multiple groups interested, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, well, I want to do this scene with you, and so now I'm talking to two players at the table instead of four players at the table. So there are 
fewer opportunities to interact than you would normally have, right? Like if even if we're all ha- like we're at, with uh, we're all together and we're at the blacksmiths, even if three players don't care about what's going on with the blacksmith, they could still theoretically intervene. So they still keep half an ear on things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I. What I have t- tried to start doing, and with some success, uh, is instead of sticking with one group or another through an entire scene, actually cut away in the middle of scenes. And it, it's kind of jarring in that, like, we'll be having a nice bit of back and forth dialogue, and then we'll jump to the other group, right? And the the players are, you know, typically expecting to stay on that conversation more. Mm-hmm. But basically, instead of doing, you know. 10 minutes with these two guys and 10 minutes with these two guys over here. Now I do like three minutes and jump back and forth. And what it does is it sort of makes the, it makes the downtime uh, easier to swallow for each uh, group. The other thing I've started doing is trying to find ways to make what's happening in one scene relevant to the players in the other scene Mm -hmm. so that even though yes their characters aren't there and wouldn't know what's going on the players are interested because i mean let's be honest we're sitting around the game table even if your character is not supposed to know about something you're still listening (laughs) right Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. i I guess if you every time you're not in the scene if you plug your ears maybe that doesn't happen but people are still going to be listening right and so when possible, I want to make it so that the other group is listening, so that when everyone's reunited, they can sort of say, okay, so what happened at the blacksmith, guys? Wink, wink, even though, you know, technically our characters wouldn't know what was going on. Uh, but yeah, it was sort of a... Uh, it was sort of an experiment that started in my Forgotten Realms campaign that I was running on Monday nights, where I would do that kind of thing and bounce back and forth and make it relevant to each group and I found that my players were pretty receptive to it the only thing that was jarring was if we really got on a roll with a bit of dialogue between player and NPC and I cut away sometimes that would disengage that player so you have to be careful with it Mm -hmm. I think but I don't know does that I feel like I've done all the talking here. Does that seem to <laughs> no? And I think that's experience. Yeah, and I feel like um, that's that's a strategy I've used as well. The the cutting away back and forth so that uh, you you don't just do one scene and then cut over and then do the other right. Um, the going back and forth, and I think there's two different sort of philosophies about do or or moments that you can grab as a DM to make that switch. One of them is right when you've hit a climax, switch and leave them on a cliffhanger. You know, right. so then they're they're itching to get back into it, um, or you know, as you said, sometimes the pitfall is, or it could just take them out of that moment. But hopefully, it it, it leaves them on a cliffhanger, and they're, and they're eager and itching to get back into it, and so they're paying attention and waiting for their turn again. Uh, and then the other time is when they're sitting around not sure what to do. That's the perfect time to switch, also, because then you can give them some time to chew on it and to think think about it, right. and, and go deal with the other group. And meanwhile, they're still actively contemplating what's going on so that they'll be ready when you come back to them because they never know when it's going to happen right and what i really try to do is listen for lulls in the conversation because even in like a normal face-to-face conversation with two people there will be the occasional like you know few beats of silence before someone picks up again so what i do is uh, i listen very carefully during these scenes for one of my players to sort of stall out and at that point i cut over to the other group and that way that player's not sort of on the spot either to okay i gotta 
to keep the scene going? What am I going to say? Right? It gives them that player, you know, three, four minutes to think about what their character would say and how they would react. Like, I know that while I love role-playing, and I'm actually one of those role-players that likes really dramatic scenes, like, I, I love it when my character gets to do something that I'm like, that would be an awesome scene in, in like, a dramatic action movie, right? Even as much as I love dramatic role-playing and tense moments and stuff like that, I tend to stall in my in my dialogue, right? Because I'll be like... Now, you evil villain, I will get vengeance upon you for what you've done to my village. And the team will be like, oh, yeah, well, did you know that I'm secretly your father? And, of course, even as a player, I'm like, uh, der. And at that moment, (laughs) I need a second to process and think about, okay, what's going to happen? So when I'm on the other side of the screen, I make sure, and as soon as I see the the wheel, the hamster wheel turning in my player's brain, I cut to the other group because that way that player doesn't feel pressure to jump back with anything and can sort of think and compose their response as opposed to needing to be very quick on the trigger with their with their response. And so I think, I think that helps mm-hmm. an awful lot too. The other thing is we've talked a lot about sort of in role-playing scenes and the, the sort of uh, – or in interaction scenes and the, the same thing can apply to exploration scenes. But I think when it comes to combat, I, I know this is going to sound ridiculous to some people, but I actually think it's easier for me to run split parties during combat than it is out of combat. And the, the method I use typically is I try and make sure that both groups are in combat at the same time. And, you know, if one group walked into an ambush and the other group is, you know, <laughs> shopping for wheelbarrows, <laughs> maybe the group shopping for wheelbarrows gets ambushed as well, right? I mean, it's a little contrived, but at the same time, when combat busts out, you don't want two players sitting there going, okay, so do I haggle with the guy for the wheelbarrow? <laughs> is that the end of my turn? Right now, you, like, I, I'm not afraid to throw a little bit of, uh, a little bit of combat in there when that happens. And so, what I typically do is I just draw two battle mats. I basically say, okay, this is you guys, this is these guys over here. And I draw two battle mats, and I roll one initiative. And like everybody, everybody rolls initiative, it's all on the same chart, and we just run through it just like everyone was together, right? Like, okay, 18, all right, Steve, it's your turn. 19, okay, Bob, it's your turn, even though you're on the complete different battle, right? And what that does is it means that the players at the table are just as engaged as they would be in a combat all sitting around the, the you know, sitting around the same battle mat instead of being split across two different battle mats. And I think that works fine um, from an attention, point of, uh, attention span point of view because mm-hmm. if your players can handle, you know, the normal attention span of, of rounds of combat, they can handle it when they're split up just as well. Sure. So I used to actually used to use that a lot in Star Wars because I think one of the challenging parts of the Star Wars role-playing game, to go on a little bit of a tangent here, is that you had, like, space battles, right? And in the space battle, like, one or two people could shine. And everybody else is like, okay, well, I guess me, Obi-Wan, and 3PO strap into the seat around the chess table and wait while everybody else has a good time. So what I would do is be like, okay, well, you know, we'll do the space battle on one battle mat, and then, oh no, there's some uh, droid bordering you know, party raiders that have infiltrated the ship and then run a uh, an interior of the ship ground combat at the same time. And even though 
the two groups were using radically different game mechanics at any given time, they were still on the same initiative, so it'd be like, okay, Bob, you go. All right, I fly my X-Wing and I do this thing. Okay, Steve, you go. All right, I use my lightsaber to cut open one of the droids, right? And it just it flowed very smoothly together. And so I look for opportunities when I'm running D&D to do the same thing. Like if I know that uh, you know certain players are going to be engaged by... Uh, a certain kind of combat, I will steer it towards that. Like, okay, you know, we're exploring and we come across this room full of traps, right? And it's the two rogues in the room full of traps. Boom, that's excellent, right? The rest of the party in the room full of traps may not have been as exciting. So while the two rogues are dealing with the room full of traps, the rest of the party is dealing with the goblins that are rushing towards the room full of traps, right? And sort of basically create two different combat encounters that cater to each group's like preferences and needs and just run at the same time. Sure. Now, that brings up a a whole other area of questioning. If you're going to split the party in a combat as a a DM, what do you need to do to your encounter design to make that okay? I mean, you don't want to throw the same strength of a fight after him because, you know, what a party can handle a a couple of guys without a cleric, they're going to have a hard time with. Yeah, so there's there's sort of a couple of tiers to this, right? The easiest thing that I can say is obviously you build your individual encounters catered towards a smaller group, right? So you just use fewer monsters is, is the easy thing to say. But at the same time, that really only accounts for, um, you know, the sheer output of monsters, right? Like, okay, I would normally use five goblins against you guys, but since there's only two of you, I only want to use two or three, right? That accounts for part of it, but especially in 4th edition, player characters tend to have a lot of tricks up their sleeve, either through magic items or utility powers or attack powers that do crazy things, and when you have fewer party members, you also have fewer tricks, so one of the things you have to watch out for is situations where the opponents that they're fighting are doing things that normally would be sort of swept aside by, oh yeah, okay, well we we put this bad condition on the fighter, but the cleric can grant people a saving throw, right? So that would normally be a thing that they would just sweep aside. Now, when it's the fighter and the rogue together with no cleric, all of a sudden that save-ends effect is even more dangerous, right? So I think you kind of have to... I I like to say that you have to either go easier on your party as far as nasty tricks goes, or accept the fact that you're throwing nasty tricks at them, and that it's going to be even harder for them to deal with than usual, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially like you look at a lot of elites and solo monsters in 4th edition have some pretty nasty tricks, because they have to. Because in the normal environment, that guy's fighting four to five party members, right? That monster is fighting four to five party members with four to five party members worth of other tricks to let them get out of things. So, like, when we're designing a solo monster, we'll be like, yeah, you know, this guy, he's fighting four guys, but those four guys are going to have all kinds of tricks and can, can shut the solo down. So we need to make it just a little bit scarier, right? Like, it's a big difference in monster design between standard monsters and then elites and solos is that an elite and solo not only has to have more hit points and put out more damage and have more protection against uh, action draining conditions, they also have to sort of spike higher as far as their danger. And as soon as you take a few player characters out of the equation, all of a sudden 
that spike is even more dangerous. You also have to be aware that uh, when you have any kind of um, swinginess in an encounter, like, well, this encounter could be really easy or really hard, like, okay, there's a bunch of goblins rushing at them, but if they um, collapse this tunnel, then only half of them get through, so it could be really easy, but if they don't collapse the tunnel, uh, a ton of them could get through, it's going to be really hard. In an encounter with a lot of swinginess like that, that is way harder to deal with with fewer characters, right? So even if even if you engineer that that the smaller encounter, if there's any kind of swinginess, it's going to be more dangerous for the group. So you have to kind of watch out for high variance abilities. Um, yeah, I think that covers. Most of my sort of mechanical side of things, right? And then, of course, like the, so, those are all like the balance concerns. Um, you're always going to have to make tweaks. Uh, one thing I would encourage DMs to use is waves of enemies, especially when you've got uh, smaller groups. Like, you know, I've got two groups that are split up. Well, instead of throwing, you know, three or four goblins at them at once, maybe I throw one or two, and then a round or two later, the next two show up, right? And it sort of eases you into it. So you could actually have a a full-size encounter that's broken up into smaller chunks and have it be okay for that smaller group because you've delayed it a little bit. And I mean, that's a, a pretty simple trick that, that DMs have been using, you know, since the dawn of time, right? But that's actually a really good way that I like to take, like, if I've done all my prep work for the night and I'm expecting, okay, this room, when the players go in here, all the player characters are going to be there. If I've built that encounter with that assumption, and then during actual play, my players show up, and they're like, oh, okay, uh, Bob and Steve, you guys go over there. Uh, Jerry and Mike, you guys go over there. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at, okay, well, the party that is entering this room is now half the size, and <laughs> be totally obliterated by this fight. I just basically say, okay, cut it in half, and then delay it, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that happens when you do that is, okay, the party split up, uh, now this group is fighting. If one group manages to disentangle themselves and regroup with the other group, if you've introduced those sort of waves of bad guys, it's really easy to ramp the difficulty back up and just say, okay, and now another wave shows up as well. So um, definitely should not be afraid to use waves in combat. Right on. Have you ever tried doing a skill challenge where the party was split and they had to sort of do different do, do different activities in different locations? That's much easier, right? Because mm -hmm. like the skill challenge is so abstracted conceptually that basically like and and I've definitely done this before, you could have skill challenges where the party is physically separated, you know, from each other and yet they're all contributing to the same goal. Um I can't remember exactly what had happened, but basically uh, the party had fled from an, uh, basically a big bad guy, and they were lost in the wilderness, right? And somehow it had happened that they had all sort of escaped from the – I call it a dungeon, but it wasn't really a dungeon. It was like a big um, briar patch, right? They had all kind of escaped at different points, and now they're lost in this like snow-covered woods during a blizzard, and none of them are physically close to each other at all. But at the same time, I'm like, okay – for you guys to survive, this is going to be a skill challenge, but you can all sort of participate on your own and do things on your own. And then failures, well, those are going to be strikes against your party, your fellow party members making it out alive, right? So it's 
it's much easier to do that in a skill challenge, uh, and I think that's one of the places where you can see uh, the sort of melding of what we've been talking about with interaction and, and exploration, like that sort of back and forth, and then the initiative system of combat is that, like, okay, I'm running this skill challenge, I just want to bounce around the table and give everybody a chance to go, just like you would in combat, but it's not limited by the sort of design constraints of creating an encounter, right? So mm-hmm. instead, it's like, okay, you guys, you could run a skill challenge where every player character was on a different plane of existence and it would work just fine, as long as it actually made sense. <laughs> right. I sort of have I sort of have in my head this uh, this vision of sort of a, I don't know, a, a clockwork dungeon or whatever, and you in, in, order, in order to, you know, open the final door, you have to be in five different locations doing different things, and yeah. I think it would, it would be an, an interesting and engaging way of forcing a party split like that. Yeah, um, it's it's challenging because uh, in like a situation like that could be really cool, but at the same time, um, players have been so taught by years and years of experience <laughs> not to split their party up that as soon as the adventure demands that, it's going to feel like a trap, right? And, you know, maybe it is, but <laughs> it's I, I don't want to go to that well too often, Sure, but every now and then it feels really good. And, like, I also really like the idea of if you're going to nudge the party towards a split, uh, do it in a way that makes them feel like, okay, this is serving some kind of story purpose, right? Like, when the players all fled from the the giant briar patch and into the blizzard-filled forest, right, they sort of knew, okay, this is the DM giving us a chance to escape and regroup without it making it sort of contrived, right? So I, I like to to find ways to make it Make sort of narrative sense when I split the when I nudge the party to split, and if they choose to split themselves, hey, that's on them, right? I'm not going to stop them. You, what I did in a, one of my games was the players had found the player characters had found these mind control necklaces, and they wanted to try to figure out what they were and investigate them. So they like some people went off to the library, some people went off to the lab, and things like that. And the other great thing that happened with that is because not all five characters were around, nobody could try to say, "Oh, I missed that roll. I'm going to roll for that." You know, have another person jump in and try mm-hmm. to roll and and mess with it that way because they're in different areas. They couldn't do it. <laughs> Yeah, we we often talk about, and something we, we talk about around here, uh, we like to call it the uh, lucky idiot versus the unlucky genius problem, right, that you sometimes run into. And it's it's not a very frequent thing, and I call it a problem, but I really think it's more of an incident than a problem where it's like, okay, I've got a 24 intelligence, and yet I rolled a 1, so okay, well, I got this, right? Oh, well, I've only got a, you know, a 10 intelligence, but I rolled a 20. Now, all of a sudden, like, the guy, the, the, just the average guy knows more than the genius? That seems <laughs> weird, right? So, splitting the party up kind of a... It, it sort of enforces a little bit of niche protection uh, in, in situations like that, so... And, and yeah. honestly, when your players split themselves up, I think it's like I think it's really cool for the DM to basically say this is a chance for me to let those players show how good they are at their niches, right? So like if the fighter and the rogue go off by themselves, I want to do like I want to give them things to do involving like traps and hazards or <laughs> like you know, okay, the fighter's got to hold the door while the 
the the rogue, you know, disarms this trap. Otherwise, they're going to be crushed to death or something. I don't know. I'm just making that up. You know, in all of your examples, it's always a fighter and a rogue that go off together. I, I see a buddy, a, you know, a buddy movie coming on. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think of it that way because in my like Wednesday night campaign, like me, I, I play a, a wizard, uh, and so my wizard and the bard tend to go off together a lot and we're like oh let's go explore arcane things right whereas like our two fighters are like hey let's go be muscular together or whatever <laughs> and so like <laughs> we tend to divide by class lines it's class warfare but we we tend to divide by class lines uh in my wednesday night game so that's sort of tainting everything i say well that works out for you because you've got the healer in your group well, that's. I have one of our healers. <laughs> who, uh, we we also have another healer who doesn't like to heal very much. So, uh, that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So I've got the one that likes to heal. That that works out for me. Right, right. Excellent. Nice. Uh, now, some of what you what you talked about leads well into our player conversation. I think it's a good time to transition into that then. Um, you know, if you're making a call on how to handle something like that as a DM, some players have a hard time dealing with that. You know, when, when you're making up rules on the fly or you're changing rules or you're, the DM has to make a call on something or makes a call that goes against maybe the rules as written, um, some players struggle to sort of adjust to that. And I, and I wonder if you have any advice on for players on how to sort of deal with that when, when maybe a rule or a call chafes them a little bit. So I can, I can sort of tell you how I feel and then, and that will hopefully translate into sort of a larger, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, philosophy here. But basically the way I look at it personally, and, and I, I DM on Monday nights and I run on, or, and I play on Wednesday nights. So I, I sit on both sides of the table and have for the last several years, right? Uh, really forever, but, uh, you know, throughout fourth edition's lifespan, I've been running in one game and playing in the other, or, and yeah, running in one game and playing in the other. And the way I sort of approach it as a player is that while we're all there to have a good time, the DM puts in a lot more work than the players do away from the table. And, and that's not a universal truth. And I don't want it to say like, Oh, I know exactly what's happening in every game table around the world. Right. But DMs have to put in a lot of effort because while a player is responsible for controlling only his character, the DM is responsible for running not only every other creature and character and monster in the world, but also the environment and juggling all kinds of uh, world building and adventure building and encounter building. The DM's got a lot on his plate. And as a result of that, I tend to, as a player, be much more forgiving of of my DM when he starts to uh, make changes, because I know that if my DM is going to be making changes, it's probably to serve some purpose in the story. And like, you know, there, there are always going to be times where you feel a little, like you feel a little robbed, like the villain got away. Really? Okay. Whatever. Like there are always going to be times where you, where you don't agree with the DM's call, but a, my DM, Chris Perkins, right. Puts in way more work than I do in the (laughs) campaign. Right. So that earns him a little bit of credit with me. Yeah. I I hear Chris, Uh, I can hear Chris is a pretty all right DM. Chris is a pretty good DM, but even like even if it wasn't Chris, right? Like even if I was playing in someone else's campaign, that person puts in a lot more work than I do as a player. So that earns them a little bit of credit, which they get to burn on on things like that, right? Uh, and the other part of it too is that like 
you have to have, as a player, you have to be able to trust that your DM is there to make sure that the overall play experience is fun for everyone. And I, I know that we as longtime gamers, and, and probably many of the people listening to your, your podcast are longtime gamers, we as gamers tend to get very jaded about, you know, bad DMing, right? Like, oh... We've all played with that DM who's just out there to tell his story and not the player's story. And we've all played with that DM that's just out to screw the players and that's out there to, you know, make, make things hard on players and things like that. And it's easy, even though you may have run into people like that, it's easy to think that that is the rule and not the exception, right? That, like, there's some sort of, like, if the DM is changing things, obviously he's doing it to screw us, or obviously he's doing it because he's trying to tell his story and not ours, right? It's very easy to get that jaded. I mean, I, I see it on the on the message boards all the time. People will be like, oh, I, I hate Mother May I DMing because that means, like, I have to ask the DM permission to do things and play this guessing game with them. And that's an extremely cynical way to look at the player-DM relationship, right? I, I, I mean, you know, call me the eternal optimist and, and call me naive if you, if you want, but I tend to think that despite the fact that there are bad DMs out there, that the vast majority of people who have been in long-term D&D games have pretty good DMs, right? Or at least DMs that are there to make sure that both player and DM is having a good time. Because that's what it's all about, right? Is that We're all there to have a good time. And sometimes the DM will want to do things in, the, uh, in, in an attempt to make sure that the experience is satisfying for everybody. Now, we know, I mean, I say we, I'm speaking as DM here, right? It's, it's pretty common to come across situations where even though it's a challenge or something goes against what the players want, it will end up creating a more satisfying story in the end, right? The villain gets away or the players are defeated or, you know, the super awesome magic item gets destroyed or things like that, that even though, like, all stories need downbeats just as much as they need upbeats, right? And so I like to think that for the most part... DMs, when they do things that players may not agree with, they're doing it to serve a greater need. At least, I feel like that's what I'm doing when I'm, when I'm running a game. At least, I hope that's what I'm doing when I'm running a game. I feel like that's what my DM does. And I feel like there is a, a strain of desire that runs through every DM that is the desire to see a great story play out. And not just his story, but the story of his players, or her players, as the case may be, right? And I feel like, as a player, I owe it to my DM to have that little bit of faith, right? Like, I, I, I like to approach the game table that, with the belief that there is good faith between me and the DM, because if I'm not having a good time, then the, the DM's going to lose me as a player. I'm just going to quit, right? So it's in the DM's best interest to keep me interested in the game. But at the same time, it's also in the DM's best interest to keep me interested in the game. Not just winning, right? But also interested in the game and interested in the story. So the DM's got to walk a tightrope between letting me have everything I want or sometimes throwing up obstacles, right? And I think that's 
that's a part of the DM's job that it's easy to misinterpret as, oh, he's just trying to tell his story, or oh, he's just trying to screw us, or oh, he's one of those old school player killing DMs, right? And like, yeah, I'm not saying those guys aren't out there, right? But I think that it's it's an extremely cynical way to to interpret things that I hope people would step back and realize that you know what my DM is he's making this call because he thinks it's going to make our game better right mm-hmm. and that's that's really what all DMs want is they want to make their games better and i think even the the quote bad DMs right uh, i think even they are coming from a place of good intentions you know sure no, no, nobody's going into saying you know i'm going to get i'm going to really get into dungeons and dragons so i can ruin somebody's afternoon one day <laughs> you know right well and you know like it's easy to take that sort of caricatured stereotype and blow it up into this i don't know exactly how to explain it but this sort of boogeyman mm-hmm. right that haunts the collective culture of all D and D players, right? And actually, it's funny. I've had this conversation in the context of why certain decisions are made in the creation of rules in various editions, right? Because, like, if you look at the transition between first and second edition, right? In in the way that the book is written, there's a sort of tonal shift, right? That is like saying, oh, okay, DMs. You need to be running a story, a story-oriented game, right? You need to be orient, running a game that is highly narrative. Because if you're not, then you're like, you know, you're you're, you're doing a disservice to your players, right? And there's this sort of like the the rules didn't really change as much, although they did clean up like not with proficiencies and stuff like that. But the the tone of the books shifted as a response to a you know a subset of DMs probably, right? Well, by the time you get to third edition, the the world is starting to change, right? And we're starting to see the rise of the internet, and it's easier than ever for people to get together. And so when I tell the story about my bad DM, it doesn't just reach the three other guys at my gaming table, right? Now, because organized play is reaching its, you know, like basically going up and up, like we've seen over the course of its uh, lifespan, of D&D's lifespan, organized play has only increased basically, right? So now all of a sudden when I tell my story about I'm a bad DM, it spreads to all the guys in my organized play group and then they go off to conventions and they tell that story. I got stories that I still tell to this day about conventions that I went to back in Knoxville, Tennessee when I was in college where I had a crazy bad DM, right? That's just one experience. I don't tell the story about the you know, half a dozen other great games I played at that same convention because they were great. And I was just like, yeah, that was fun. And it would be a really boring story because it would be, hey, I went to a convention and I played in this guy's game and it was really fun. <laughs> and then I say that six more times, right? So, like, things start to spread out and all of a sudden, like, there's this... And, and I, I actually... I've talked to some of the guys that played a lot of organized play in second and third edition and it seems like there was this sort of uh, big fear that arose out of uh, uh, of organized play of like the the bad DM right because it's like well I want to have I want to when I go to an organized play event when I go to a uh, convention I want to have the same experience that I would anywhere else right so when third edition rolls around you see a lot of rules effort made to make that the case 
right? To basically say, okay, we're going to standardize things, and we're going to, and 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 I think these are all positive changes. I'm just sort of telling a story here that uh, is sort of along two tracks, right? But like, we're going to standardize things, and we're going to try and create a more unified experience, so that no matter what table you sit down at, you have a good time, right? And and it put a lot more hand or more power in the hands of the, of the players, right? Because it's like, okay, how do we make sure that the players have a more standardized experience? Well, we're going to put these rules in the hands of the players. We're going to let them do things more proactively because that way you create a more even experience. Well, you roll around to fourth edition and we've had, you know, eight years of, of, you know, third edition play and even more efforts are made in that, you know, direction, right? Like, okay, we're going to create powers because that way everybody can do something interesting every turn without having to ask the DM and stuff like that, right? And I think that while these are all good developments that have added positive things to the game, there's also been a shift in the psychology of, of D&D players as a result of this that basically has magnified the fear of the bad DM, right? And I'm not saying that this is it's it's an unjustified fear, but rather I think that because of the internet and because of like the the fact that it's easier than ever to find people to talk about and to find an audience for what you say, it's easier for those horror stories to spread. And then you look at the rules and you see how it's reacting to you know sort of the player environment and you can say oh this must be justified right this like we must need you know powers or whatever because there's so many bad dms out there that they are making it hard to improvise things or whatever right like that's not really the origin of powers but it like you can see how people would make that connection right and so I think that it's very easy to fall into that trap of thinking that, like, my DM might be a bad DM. Like, that's the, the secret fear that everybody has. <gasps> what if what if my DM is bad, right? Like, he's been really good all this whole time. Like, for 15 <laughs> years, we've been playing D&D together, and he's never made me sad, right? But, like, you know, I, I'm exaggerating for comedy purposes, obviously, right? But, like, it's it's easy to sort of think that, wow, maybe, maybe there is an epidemic of bad DMing out there. And what I'd really like for people to do is just come to the game table with a little more good faith and basically realize that the DM... The the even the bad DM like we say like those the 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 quote unquote bad DM which is actually a pretty bad term right it might just be that like that guy that's a bad DM he might just be inexperienced yeah or it might be his first time DMing or he might need he might just need some advice right doesn't mean he's bad at it he just hasn't done it enough right like that is not typical and I think that when people can have that kind of good faith and realize that no, my DM's probably just doing this to make our overall narrative better. I think that you get to a much more satisfying place as a D&D player because you stop worrying about it. And yeah, it's like, well, okay, I didn't get everything didn't go my way this time, but at the same time I know that down the road my DM is probably going to make that pay off some way. Like it's going to be really satisfying even though the villain got away now, it's going to be really satisfying in 2 months when I get to get my vengeance on this villain, right? I, th- I think that that can be a very 
fun experience, and I hope that people will sort of approach it that way. And I have rambled for way too long and not given <laughs> a chance to talk. So, hey, guys, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Um, they hear us all the time, so it's good to have, have your expert opinion here. Oh, Lord, I don't know if it's an expert opinion. I'm just <laughs> – I, again, like I, I feel very often that I'm just a DM who's gotten really, really like fortunate to mm-hmm. also be able to do game design. Sure. So – what do you do then if you've got a situation where, okay, I'm a player, the DM's made a call, I sort of grin and bear it, but I think he's made the wrong call? So I used to have a, a standing rule in my old game, and I think this is actually uh, some advice I would give to all DMs, right? but I used to have the standing rule that if you disagree with the call that I make, especially if it's a rules call, but even if it's a story call, right? if you disagree with the call that I make, during the game, let it slide. Right. Or if you can correct it very quickly, right? Be like, if I'm like, okay, and this guy moves and uh, he makes an opportunity attack against you, and you can be like, wait, you can't make opportunity attacks on your turn, that's fine, right? Like, no problem. But if it's something that's going to invite some kind of discussion or argument, just let it slide. But after the session, you should feel free to approach me and let's talk about it. Because you know what? We're, We're all hopefully relatively mature players and can have a discussion about things like that. Even if I'm not happy with the way, or even if you're not happy with the way things went, I want to hear about it, right? As a DM, right? Because even if I still say, well, I'm sticking with my call, at least now I know that you didn't like that, but you were respectful enough to me that I can say, okay, like he didn't like this. So I probably shouldn't do this again, or Mm -hmm. I should reconsider the next time that this happens. So it's sort of a, it's a table rule, but it's also just sort of a social rule that's like, you know, let's not disrupt the game, but if you want to talk about it later, let's do so. And I think that when I talk about coming to the, the table with good faith, that is completely a two-way street, right? Like, the DM shouldn't be sitting there going, oh, my players are all just a bunch of munchkins that are trying that are out to kill my monsters, right? Like, that's not productive for anybody. I mean, even though it's completely true. Uh, <laughs> no, tattoos. For a second there, I thought Mike Shea was in the room. I know, right? <laughs> the ghost of Mike Shea haunts us all. Anyways, uh... <laughs> I've totally lost my train of thought. No, uh, so like I, I think that's part of the good faith, right? Is being able to you know come to the table, play the game, and have disagreements, and not have it disrupt the game, and be able to talk about it like mature people afterwards, and have the DM actually listen to that. So it's that that good faith is totally a two way street. Mm-hmm. Like if if I would encourage players to you know, give their DMs a little bit of a bit of benefit of the doubt. I would also encourage DMs to be willing to listen and accept feedback from their players when there are disagreements like that. Mm-hmm. And I might take it even a step further. If you're a player, don't just give your DM the benefit benefit of the doubt, but uh, if necessary, put on your poker face. Sure. <laughs> don't let on that it upsets you, yeah. um, because that. DMs are oftentimes hearing advice that they need to be, you know, constantly looking for for nonverbal feedback, you know, on on how things are going. And so uh, DMs will pick up on that and then realize something's wrong, but not know what's wrong and and may completely misinterpret it. So I'd say, you know, put on that poker face and and let it slide and and don't let on that it bothers you until the game is over and, and then address it at that point. No, I, I completely agree. That's a really great point. And in fact, I think that uh, when I talk about disrupting the table, I think nonverbal communication is a big part of it too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then the last thing I would say is that this is advice for both players and DMs, right? At the end of the day, 
we're all sitting around the table pretending to be elves, right? Like, <laughs> not solving, you know, the world hunger crisis. We're not going to discover the Higgs boson here, right? Just, even if you disagree with something, remember to keep it all in perspective. Because even if your dwarf fighter died because of a ruling that your DM made, or even if your party killed that solo monster in one round, right? It's not the end of the world. The game will go on. So you shouldn't flip the table then? (laughs) I'm not going to tell anybody not to flip the table, right? What kind of hypocrite would I be? (laughs) You know what? Then I'll say it. Don't flip the table. (laughs) You know what? Like, I'm giving all this advice, but I think that a large majority of players and DMs already know all this, right? Because like I say, I think that good players and good DMs form the vast majority of the D&D sure. playing audience, right? But, but I, think because, a, I think a lot of DMs or players actually, you know, can also see that guy. You know, they know that guy, and they've seen him yeah. at tables. So I think sure. it's good advice to put out there anyway. Sure. I, you know, like, I've I got a player in my game that if I do certain things, he gets frustrated, right? And I can see his frustration, but at the same time, I know, like, because we've had conversations before, I know that he's not sitting there going, oh, man, Rodney's such a bad DM, right? I know that what he's saying is, I'm irritated because I didn't get my way, and I want to have a conversation about this later, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, we have approached it with that sort of mutual respect that I think really... Is, is the key to a healthy environment because the fact of the matter is that D&D and all role-playing games are games in which uh, the rules, even as well as, like, the best design rules sometimes are going to be the wrong thing for the situation. And that goes both directions, right? Like, players, DMs, like, a player will be like, the awesome thing here would be for me to swing on the chandelier and kick the guy, but the rules say that it's horribly suboptimal, right? Like, that's going to happen. So in a game, in a, in a world where you sometimes need to bend the rules, I think you've got to have that sort of mutual respect. It's essential to keeping the table running. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, I think uh, we've uh, covered that pretty well, and we're approaching the end of our time. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, guys. So if people wanted to uh, keep up with you around the interwebs, where would they go to do so? Uh, so the best place to to uh, get updates from me is through my Twitter feed, probably. I am uh, at W-O-T-C underscore Rodney uh, on Twitter. And I've also got a Facebook fan page, but only like 400 people are uh, li- 400 people have liked my Facebook fan page. But oh, we'll, we'll fix that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can search for Rodney Thompson designer on there. Uh, and then, of course, I write Rule of Three for the uh, Wizards of the Coast website. So uh, you can catch my Rule of Three every week and submit questions to that. Um, those are probably the easiest ways. And you're involved in the official podcast, yes? Uh, yes, yes, I am. Right on. So you can catch me there. Sweet. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. So we'd like to say thank you to Game Roddy, Continue Magazine, and Rodney Thompson. It was awesome having Rodney on. Definitely. I've been trying to talk to him and, and get him on the show for a while now, so it was, it was great that we could finally put that together. Sweet. And if people want to get a hold of us, they can do so. Uh, they can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Call into the uh, seldom used Tome, Tome Biz line at 919 B I Z T O M E. That's 919 Biz Tome. People should use that more often. It's fun to get voicemails. 
And you can always swing by the forums at GamersHavenPodcast.com. Find the show notes at TheTomeShow.com, and you can always leave comments there as well. And that, my friends, is episode 193, where we've gone our separate ways and learned when we don't like something, we just have to deal. Because otherwise the DM gets grumpy. I think that's what we learned, yeah. Yeah. We learned all of that in this episode of The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone. I'm not a